The sermon text is the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. When they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees met together. One of them, who was an expert in the law, asked him a question, trying to trap him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how can David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The 13 verses we just heard from the book of Matthew lay out for us the two great teachings of the Christian faith, the law and the gospel. And conveniently, it does them in that order. First the law, and then the gospel. And it all flows out of two trap questions. The first trap question is asked to Jesus, and so it fails. The second trap question is asked by Jesus, so it works. The occasion is this. It is Tuesday of Holy Week. It is three days before Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus is teaching in the temple courts in Jerusalem. This is the last time that Jesus is going to preach or teach publicly until he preaches seven very short but very meaningful sermons from the cross. Jesus' enemies have now decided that they cannot tolerate him any longer. They have to get rid of him for good. And they have been looking for an opportunity to do that, but haven't found one yet. They will soon when Judas steps up to the plate for them. In the meantime, they are trying to discredit Jesus by asking him these trick trap questions. There was one group that asked Jesus if it was right for the Jewish people to pay taxes to Caesar, to the Roman government. And they figured if Jesus said yes, the Jewish people would reject him for good and all. And if he said no, then maybe they would get rid of him because the Romans could arrest him for subversion. And there was another group that dreamed up kind of this wild scenario about a, a hypothetical woman whose husband died, and then she got remarried, and that guy died too, and this happened to the poor lady seven times. And the question was, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And they asked Jesus that question because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they were trying to prove the impossibility and the ridiculousness of the whole idea. Well, Jesus has answered both of those trap questions truthfully and untrapped. But his enemies are not ready to say uncle yet. They are still looking for a way to discredit him. So a group of his enemies, the Pharisees, now they send one representative up to Jesus with this question in another attempt to catch Jesus in his words. The question is, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. 
Now, this is really not a hard question. It's actually a very easy question to answer. We teach very little children in Sunday school the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And then when they get older, we teach them in catechism the meaning of that commandment. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And we also teach that if you got that first and greatest commandment right, if God is number one in your heart and you don't have any small g gods, any idols in your heart, then the rest of the commandments are going to fall into place. Because if you love God more than anything else, you're going to want to do every commandment that he gives you. Easy question. But the Pharisees have a couple of theological problems with this. One problem is that they have been spending the last couple centuries making up their own commandments and piling their own made-up rules on top of the Ten Commandments and the whole law that God gave to Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament. And they did that with a purpose. They made up their own rules to follow so they could exalt themselves. So they could set themselves up as super holy, much more holy than everybody else in Israel. The other problem they had with the law was that they were using different sections of the law against each other. They were pitting different commandments against each other. Specifically what they were doing was they were setting up against each other the commandment to love God and the commandment to love their neighbor. They were using the command to love God as an excuse not to love their neighbor. And you see this as a running theme throughout the Gospels. You remember how upset these men were when they saw Jesus sitting and eating with people like tax collectors and prostitutes. Why were they so confused by that? Well, because they would never go within a country mile of dirty people like, see, they had to keep away from those kinds of neighbors to keep themselves holy and pure in the eyes of the Lord. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest and Levite, not only did they not help the dying man at the side of the road, but you remember that detail, how they cut to the other side? There was a reason they did that other than they just didn't want to help the guy. They wanted to be able to show their love for the Lord by serving in the temple. And there was a rule that said if you came into contact with a dead body, then you were unclean and you couldn't serve in the temple. See, they wanted to love the Lord in the temple, and that led them to leave someone dying at the side of the road. A couple chapters later in Matthew, Jesus is going to preach a fiery sermon against this hypocrisy of separating the love of God from the love of neighbor. And this got so extreme and ridiculous that these men were actually using their offerings to the temple, right, that's love for God, as an excuse not to take care of their own parents in their old age. So love for God was being used as an excuse to push the neighbor aside, neglect them, despise them. And that is why the way Jesus answers this question, which is the greatest commandment, the way he answers this is so wonderful. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these commandments. So you have the first three commandments, which basically boil down to love God. 
And then you've got the last seven commandments that basically boil down to love your neighbor. And these are the unified, singular law of God. It's not one or the other. It's both. At the same time, all the time. The second, Jesus says, is like it. Because after all, who created your neighbor and put that person next to you? Who became your perfect neighbor? Who came down from heaven and became one of you, a human being, to save you and all of your neighbors from their sins? And whose loving heart wants all people to be saved, all your neighbors, by coming to faith in his son? Love for God is love for neighbor, too. And love for neighbor is love for God, too. Now, there is enough in that for us to meditate on for a very long time. But right now, I would like you especially to consider this. When Jesus says it's both love for God and love for neighbor, he is also exposing sin in our lives and convicting us of sin. Because Christians also sometimes want to choose one or the other. Love for God or love for neighbor. For example, you've got Christians who will come to church every week to show their love for the Lord. But out there, they can't be bothered to pay attention to other people at all. Or vice versa. You've got Christians who say, this is how I worship God. I sh I'm kind to other people, but I don't need to sit in some stuffy church on Sunday morning and listen to some guy talk. See, it's one or the other. Or uh, Christians will put tons of money into the offering plate and have nothing for charity. Or vice versa. They'll say beautiful things to God in prayer and then turn and speak nastily to the person next to them. Or they'll speak kindly to other people and then neglect their prayers, not say anything to God at all. Christians will work hard for their customers and their co-workers and their boss. See, love of neighbor but they never give a thought to any work they could do for the ministry of their congregation. Or again, the other way around. We also go down this road of choosing either love for God or love for neighbor, and Jesus tells us it's not either one. It's both, all the time, at the same time. So, this law of God also convicts us of sin. Now, for the forgiven children of God, what Jesus says here is also a gift and it's an opportunity. Because Jesus says, when you serve and bless and help your neighbor, you are serving and blessing and helping me. Three chapters later, Jesus will still be teaching in the temple courts. He'll be teaching about Judgment Day. And on that last day, Jesus is going to turn to the sheep on his right, to those who have been blessed with salvation, and tell them this, for I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was lacking clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. So imagine for a moment you heard the surprising news that next weekend, Jesus Christ was going to come down from his throne in heaven and take a two-day trip to Woodbridge, Virginia. And this is Jesus' plan for Sunday morning. He's going to come and worship with us here at Trinity Lutheran. If he wants to guest preach, we'll let him. If he wants to just sit in the pews, that'll be fine too. And after the service, Jesus is going to enjoy refreshments with us, his very first cup of Maxwell House coffee. And this is Jesus' plan for the afternoon. 
He's going to your house for lunch. Can you imagine that? The work, the preparation you would put in to host Jesus, how you would spare no expense to show Jesus what he means to you. You would consider that the greatest honor and opportunity of your life, wouldn't you? To be able to welcome Jesus Christ into your home? To get to feed Jesus? To get to speak kindly to your Savior? While Jesus is speaking to you and he says, I give you that opportunity with every person that you come across in this world. It starts in your home. Children, when you honor and obey your parents, you are honoring and obeying your Savior Jesus. And parents, when you take care of your children, spiritually and physically, you are caring for your Savior Jesus. Friends, when you help and serve and pray for friends, you are helping and serving and praying for your Savior too. The first, the second, Jesus says, is like the first. So, it's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing gift. We don't have to make up extra laws to make ourselves holy in God's eyes. We don't have to shun certain people in order to keep ourselves holy and pure. You don't even have to spend a lot of money to do this. God makes it very convenient for you that you get to show your love for him by showing love to everyone around you. And yet, this is God's law. These are God's commandments. And God's law always accuses sinners of sin. It always tells us that we have sin that needs forgiving. Because the thing about God's law is, the more seriously you take it, the more you meditate on it and think about it deeply, and then you really try to do it in your life. You say, I'm going to concentrate on this. I'm going to show love for God and my neighbor, and I'm going to do both at the same time. The more you do that, the more aware you become of your failures, of your sin. When you really focus on it, then you think of all the times where you're not generous just because you're afraid you're not going to have enough left over. Or you realize all the time that you didn't move and help somebody because it's just a whole lot easier not to move than it is to move. (laughs) We're just lazy sometimes. Jesus says, I'm standing in front of you with an opportunity to love me and each one of your neighbors. And we do not love Perfectly, either God or our neighbors, the way that God demands of us. And the law of God calls us to repent. The first part of repentance is knowing that you are sinful and being sorry for that sin. And that is what the law of God produces in our hearts. Thank God, (laughs) Jesus is not done with us yet. He's not done with those Pharisees either on Holy Tuesday. They have tried and failed to trap him with a question. Now Jesus is going to try and succeed to trap them with a question. And the thing about this question that Jesus asks them is, the unbelieving heart is going to get stuck on this question. The unbelieving heart cannot answer it. But the believing heart is struck by the answer. The believing heart is struck with comfort and joy. Jesus' question is one that the Pharisees cannot answer, but by the grace of God, you and I can. And this question unfolds in verses 41 to 46 in Matthew 22. It can be helpful to read along as we go through this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. All right, that's the setup for the trap that is coming next. And as far as it goes, the Pharisees are right in their answer so far. The Old Testament promised that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be the son of Adam, the son of Noah, the son of Abraham, son of Isaac, son of Jacob, son of Judah, and most recently, the promise was made to King David that the coming Messiah was going to be his descendant, that he was going to have a son who was a different kind of king, a divine king who was going to reign on an eternal throne. But now, here comes the part that for the Pharisees is the unanswerable riddle. Jesus is quoting Psalm 10, which King David himself wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said to them, Then how can David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So let's see if we can sort this out. The key phrase that Jesus is focusing on is the first one. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord is God the Father. The my is King David. The second Lord is the Messiah, who must also be God. Because who else would a king like David refer to as his Lord? Jesus is using this psalm to prove that the promised Messiah was not only going to be human, the son of David, but he was also going to be divine, David's Lord. Which is exactly what Jesus said about who he himself was. The Old Testament prophesies this in many places. Jesus happened to use Psalm 10. There's a dozen other passages in the Old Testament that he could have used to make the same point, that the the Messiah who was promised was going to be both human and divine. But you see, these guys believed that the Messiah was just going to be a great human, a political leader. So the only answer they can give to Jesus' question is, no one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So it's amazingly sad that the Pharisees, who thought they were experts in God's law, didn't really even understand the real significance, the real meaning of the law, of God's commandments. But now when it comes to the second great teaching of God's word, the gospel, the good news of who the Messiah is and what he does for us, they don't have a chance of grasping this because they have no faith in Jesus. How do you answer the question, how can the Messiah be both David's son, a human being, and David's Lord, true God? Well, you know, you stand up and answer that question here in church every time we say the Nicene Creed, which is the truth based on Scripture. Jesus is true God, eternally begotten of the Father, and he is also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. That's the answer, and by faith you know it, and you confess it. God has given you faith and greater wisdom than the Pharisees. But there's more, because in this one passage from Psalm 110, you not only learn who the Messiah is, that he is both human and divine, but you also get to see what that Messiah does for you. Sit at my right hand 
Again, this is God the Father speaking to the Son, the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what are the big enemies in Scripture? There's Satan, there's sin, and there's death. And those enemies are our enemies. Now, Satan is God's enemy too, but it's not even a competition. It's like lining up a Pop Warner team against the Philadelphia Eagles or something. I mean, you've got conflict, but you know every single time who's going to win. And sin and death, they cannot affect God at all. Those three enemies are really our enemies. They are the enemies that destroy and devour sinful human beings. But look, when David's Lord also becomes David's son, when Jesus comes down to be our neighbor and become bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, he now takes those enemies of ours and he makes them his own enemies. See, now Satan can get to Jesus out in the wilderness. Satan can get to him and tempt him. Sin gets to Jesus. Not that he sins, but the sin of the whole world is stacked on his back on the cross. And in the end, death gets to him too. In his life in this world, and his death on the cross, Jesus was bearing our sin. Satan was striking at the Son of God, and in the end, death touched Jesus too. He made our enemies his own enemies, and he conquered them all for us. The psalm says those enemies are now under his feet, which is a picture of abject and embarrassing defeat. Our enemy's sin is snuffed out under the Messiah's feet. Satan, his head is crushed under Jesus' feet, and Jesus stands in victory over death. He beat it on Easter morning. This is the gospel. It is the glorious good news of who the Messiah is, David's son and David's Lord, and what he has done for us. Taking on our enemies and conquering them for us. That gospel is our comfort, and it is our joy. And for those God calls to faith, it also completes our repentance. See, the law was there to show you your sin and make you sorry for it. The gospel is there to show you the answer to that sin, the salvation and the work of your Savior Jesus. And together, the Spirit uses those two teachings to produce full, God-pleasing, saving repentance. These 13 verses from Matthew 22 are really kind of a miniature case study of how the entire Bible works. Whenever you are in God's word and you read his law, it accuses you of sin and makes you sorry for that sin. And whenever you read the good news of what your Savior has done for you, it calls you to faith in him and forgives your sins. And then you have full and God-pleasing repentance. For that repentant Christian... The law does more. It teaches us. It guides us in how to give thanks to God. How to show our appreciation by keeping his commandments. In this case, it guides us to see Jesus in every neighbor and treat them accordingly. And the good news, the gospel, that motivates us to do it because what else could we do for the one who took on our enemies and conquered them for us? May the Holy Spirit use these two great teachings of God's word to keep us in repentant faith and lead us to life eternal. Amen.